I'm Ruxandra Guidi, host of The Catch, a podcast from Foreign Policy and the Walton Family Foundation about the seafood we eat and the impact it can have on our world. This season, we'll hear how Norway is handling cod's changing migration patterns and what it says about fisheries in other parts of the world. Season three of The Catch is out now. You know, Kherson is such a fascinating place for me because I felt this both when I was there last year and and also this week. Samantha Schmidt is a foreign correspondent for The Post, and she's been reporting from the southern city of Kherson, which was occupied by Russian forces until it was liberated by Ukrainian troops. Then the city was bombed relentlessly by Russian forces and now flooded when a major dam collapsed. You walk through this city and... First of all, when you're in the city itself, the main kind of center of the city is dry right now, and life is going on normally. Supermarkets and restaurants and cafes where people are sitting on the patio and, you know, just kind of uh, sipping on lattes with their friends. There was a man playing an accordion outside the supermarket. There, you know, seemed to sort of... um, be this this mentality that this is just another day in Herson. Um, but then you get closer to the flooded areas and you just see the level of destruction and you hear about the bombings that have happened, you know, even as people were trying to flee the evacuated areas. And you realize that, you know, things are not normal in Herson, but the people here are just so used to being, you know, hit with you know, catastrophe and devastation time and time and again. And it seems that they are just so good at sort of picking up the pieces and organizing themselves and figuring out, you know, what help do we need? How can we get aid to the people who need it? Um, There was no panic that I could tell. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Rhonda Colvin, your guest host. It's Monday, June 12th. Today, we hear the latest from the front lines in Ukraine, where the counteroffensive is finally underway. There are signs of small gains for Ukraine, but still it's a struggle as Russia strikes back and pursues a scorched earth strategy. Sam has been reporting from the southern port city of Kherson, which she says embodies Ukraine's struggle and resiliency in this war. Samantha, for months, there was anticipation that Ukraine would launch a counteroffensive against Russian forces. Turning overseas now, Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia is officially underway this morning. This is a make-or-break counteroffensive for Ukraine. They've been heavily armed by um, Western allied, allied countries and the U.S., and, and there is a lot of pressure on them to perform here. So a lot of excitement also. That counteroffensive has just now started to get underway. Tell us what this means for this phase of the war. This is one of the most widely anticipated uh, military offensives in recent history, and it's going to be a huge test uh, for Ukraine to show the world that it is capable of winning back its territory from Russia and that it can do so with the help of its Western allies, which have spent uh, months helping Ukraine train and arm 
its troops, uh, which have basically been waiting for this moment and we now know are officially on the ground and um, working on making advances in some of the most strategic uh, areas where Russia took territory from Ukraine last year. And, you know, when it comes to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, we've known this for weeks before it actually happened. Was there a delay? And if so, why? You know, Ukrainian officials, including President Zelensky, have long said that there wasn't going to be kind of one key moment uh, when they were going to announce the start of this um, and that it was going to be you know, a very kind of, uh, it seemed like it was going to be a slow buildup. We knew it was going to take months for Ukrainian troops to train and arm themselves and prepare for this moment. NATO has been supplying weapons and tanks to Ukraine, and uh, the weather was also important. It was a very wet spring in Ukraine, and in the southern part of the of the country, it was important to wait until uh, summertime came for some dry weather to really kind of make this big push. So it was a, a question of of training, arming, and just waiting for that right moment for the weather to hit uh, to really get the ground running on this. So short of driving the Russians out of the territory completely, what are the goals of the offensive? This is a really important moment for Ukraine to show its allies that the strategy is working, that it needed these weapons from NATO, from the U.S. in particular, uh, that it needed the training, but that it is capable of using all of that to now make this big push. And, and it, it, you know, it's important to show that they are winning the war, that they're advancing, that this is actually a war they can claim a victory in. People have been watching from from all over uh, to see if if this will work because they know that this is going to be uh, you know a potentially a months long process that you know this is not going to be a lightning fast offensive like the one we saw in Kharkiv region. Uh, this is going to be a difficult one, but what's different about this moment is that they are trained and and armed by NATO, and so this is a test to see if you know the U.S. led strategy. Uh, will work, that basically with U.S. weapons and training, they can fight like a U.S. army on their own. Samantha, Russia has been waging war on Ukraine for a year and three months now. There have been several critical turning points. What's important for people to know about this phase of the war now? This really is the phase that could be the turning point for Ukraine. It's currently marching towards key cities that, you know, if they win them back, would be huge. We're talking about, you know, potentially Melitopol um, in the Zaporizhia region. We're talking about Mariupol, which has really been the symbol of Russia's destruction. You know, an estimated 20,000 people killed. It's an incredibly important moment for Ukraine, and it's a different phase of this war, not only because of the territory it's trying to win back, but also because of the weapons and training that it is now armed with. And, you know, this could really be uh, the phase of the war that um, changes everything for Ukraine. And it is probably going to be a slow and difficult journey, but um, it's going to be a very closely watched offensive And it's not just what Ukraine could show its Western allies, but it's also what it could show Putin. This would really add pressure on the Kremlin and would show that, you know, he potentially miscalculated with this with this war. And it would deal a very serious blow to Russia and would potentially give uh, Ukraine more support from 
its allies across the world for, you know, a military victory to this war rather than a negotiated end. And that has been, you know, from the beginning, extremely important to Ukraine. They have said that they will not uh, they will not stop until they win back all of their land. And so this could be their moment to prove that they're capable of that. After the break, we return to the city of Kherson, where Samantha has been reporting, to talk about life after liberation. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Samantha, in addition to the fighting, there is another humanitarian disaster, the flooding after the major dam collapse in the city of Kherson. Samantha, you've spent a lot of time in Kherson. Tell us the latest. Yeah. You know, I was first there uh, last year in November. My colleagues and I arrived shortly after it was liberated by Ukrainian troops. Tonight, euphoria in Kherson, a major Ukrainian city now free from Russian rule. Ukrainians hugging and it was a it was a you know incredible historic moment of you know kind of jubilant celebrations uh, because the Russians which had occupied the city for months uh, were finally out and it was fascinating because we arrived and we could still see the examples of Russian propaganda all over the city there was even a billboard there that said Russia is here forever uh, but it very quickly became clear that Russia despite claiming the city and proudly calling it its own, was not afraid to destroy it little by little. And just days after the city was liberated by Ukraine, shelling started and really has continued for months ever since. Um, we understand that you know hundreds of people have been killed or injured by bombings in the city. Um, it's basically become a front line the city has really been seen as a symbol of resistance for Ukraine. It's a place that, um, you know, managed to uh, hold on during Russian occupation and has continued to hold on after, you know, months of attacks and of bombings. Uh, but it's now a city that is going to be remembered for yet another disaster, this uh, devastating flooding resulting from the destruction of a major dam nearby, which sent water rushing over the riverbanks and into dozens of communities, both in Ukrainian and Russian-controlled parts of the area. Although the water has receded um, in the last couple of days, there are still large neighborhoods in the area that are underwater. At least 3,000 people have been evacuated. A critical uh, water reservoir, resource for water for the entire region uh, and for the agriculture industry in the region has been cut off. This is really one of the most kind of devastating humanitarian and ecological disasters that uh, we have seen since the start of the war. Now, Russia and Ukraine blame each other for the dam falling. Do we have any clarity on who's responsible? 
This has been a tricky question so far because, you know, it's been tough to get evidence in terms of what exactly happened in the hydroelectric plant and, you know, who did it. We know that, you know, from the beginning, Zelensky and the hydroelectric uh, company, uh, the, the Ukraine hydroelectric company, said that this was caused by an explosion in the plant, in the engine room. And we also know that it was under Russian control at the time. So it seems, though, there is... there's. Uh, definitely consensus in Ukraine that Russia was responsible. But then, you know, the Russians, of course, are blaming the Ukrainians for it. Um, What we know is that uh, Russia really had uh, quite a bit to gain from this uh, if it was their fault. Um, We know that uh, Ukraine was about to launch a counteroffensive. And so, you know, one theory uh, is that Russia may have attacked this dam in an attempt to help thwart this counteroffensive. But as of now, it, it's still it's still difficult to say we have, you know, total clarity on what happened and the cause and who's responsible. You went to a hospital in Kherson and met people who'd been injured by the Russian attacks. Who did you meet? By the time we got there, many of the injured people had left to other hospitals, but there was one man who was still there who had a story that was just terrifying, and I think captures the horror of what Herson residents are living with right now. His name was Oleh Hryorak, and he is a 38-year-old security guard who had been staying at a friend's place in a community uh, near the river when a mortar struck the house. And this is my colleague and reporting partner, Sethi Korolchuk, who translated the interview. So uh, the night of the explosion, uh, uh, son was shelled, and he got uh, under a shelling uh, from mortars. And shrapnel went flying towards him as he was asleep in the middle of the night, and it ended up lodging into his leg and shattering it. And as he was bleeding and trying to apply pressure to his leg, he had no way to call out for help because his phone had been broken in the blast. And, you know, as he was waiting there for hours, suddenly he started to see water seeping into the house. And in the morning, the water started uh, flowing in. And it just so happened that that morning was when the floodwater started to rise. And suddenly he realized he needed to get to higher ground or else he could drown. And he ended up hoisting himself onto a couch and sort of waiting there, uh, hoping that he would, you know, stay alive and not either bleed to death or drown. And it wasn't until, you know, that morning that his friends came to the house and found him and, you know, immediately called for help. And he's now recovering. He's got, um, you know, a a metal rod stabilizing his leg, which is all bandaged up. He badly broke his leg, but it seems like he will, you know, recover. Who were some of the other people you spoke to when you were in Kherson? Yesterday, we actually accompanied a 40-year-old woman named Katya Lysenko as she returned to her apartment in Kherson on a rubber dinghy. Um, she had Her apartment has essentially become an island now, and it, they're, the only way to reach it is either to wade through high water or to take a boat over. And she took it over yesterday to go to her uh, first-floor apartment, which is was, you know, was flooded with thigh-high water, and uh, she was actually going up to her second-floor neighbor where she left two of her cats that she needed to feed. And you might not, I'm not sure if you can hear it in the audio, but we actually we actually got on another boat and followed them 
and uh, it was actually raining when this all was happening. And she then had to get step off the boat and wade through uh, this like murky, smelly brown water uh, just to get into the entrance of her apartment building and then go up the steps to her own apartment. How did the flooding change the battlefield? So we know that the flooding affected military positions on both sides of the river. It seems as though it may have uh, actually affected the Russian positions more. According to Ukrainian officials, the flooding uh, destroyed uh, many Russian military positions on their side of the river, and it caused them to retreat. Um, and we don't know exactly you know, how many units were there from either side or exactly how their um, you know, positions were affected, but military analysts told me they anticipate that this would mean you know, a sort of reshuffling um, where because this front line has been widened essentially by this river that has swelled, it, it might mean moving troops to other parts of the front line for both sides. So we might see some troops move over to the Zaporizhia region or to other parts of the battlefield, but it's hard to know exactly because, you know, both sides are, are very coy about the details of, you know, their military, uh, you know, troop changes and battlefield developments. Military analysts say they don't anticipate this will actually change the counteroffensive all that much because, you know, when we talk about the counteroffensive, we're talking about a land advance, you know, in different areas of the front line. So the counteroffensive has been anticipated for so long. Is there perhaps too much hope pinned to it? This was certainly a concern, uh, and I know that my colleagues at The Post wrote a story about how Ukrainian officials were concerned that, um, you know, that there may have been too much hype um, around this counteroffensive, and it really has been hyped up for months. And that hype is important because it is, you know, Western allies and, you know, particularly the United States watching and waiting to see if this works and if, you know, to see how Ukraine uses the weapons and training that it has provided. But the Ukrainian military is also kind of using that um, excitement and momentum as part of its sort of campaign around this counteroffensive. We even see it in sort of the public relations around it, um, where they are really trying to amp up Ukrainians about this next big offensive. So, you know, it's hard to know kind of um, whether that hype will be beneficial or, uh, you know, have some sort of um, you know, negative uh, implications, but... It's, uh, it's certainly uh, a moment that, you know, the world has been waiting for. Samantha Schmidt, thank you. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Samantha Schmidt is reporting from Ukraine for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Gabe O'Connor it was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. Special thanks to David Herzenhorn. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Rhonda Colvin. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.